The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. Our team of producers reached out repeatedly to Gene and Liberty Kasem to participate in this story. A lawyer for Gene told us this isn't a good time for Gene to speak. Liberty did not respond to our requests. Over the years, Gene has denied any allegations of abuse. In 2017, Carrie Kasem, her two siblings, and Casey's brother Munir are prepping for their wrongful death lawsuit against Gene Kasem. It's been three years after my dad died, and I'm still fighting for him, still trying to make sure he gets justice and we get justice for what Gene has done to our family. But getting justice for Casey keeps getting more complicated and strange. I'm Martin Cove, and this is Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem, Episode 8, All 50 Stars. Since Casey's death in 2014, Jean and daughter Liberty have become untraceable. But finally, after several years, the women are located and served with court papers. The day Liberty is supposed to appear for her deposition, she doesn't show up. The day we were supposed to depose Liberty, we got a note from her pediatrician. Now, mind you, this is a girl who's at this point 28 years old. And she has a pediatrician write a note that basically I'm sick, can't go to work. That's what we got. Moments later, Liberty posts a Facebook Live video. I pray. I pray every day. I pray. I miss my dad. I miss my dad so much. I haven't even had time to grieve his loss. I've been traveling and on the move trying to avoid these people. This is not the first time. This is not the first time. I'm scared. And this is why I'm coming out on Facebook Live. This is why. I should have come out a long time ago, but I was scared. I was scared. Liberty is filming herself from the Holmby Hills mansion. The once lush $42 million estate has been abandoned for two years. They won't turn on the the water and power. They've shut it off. The water, electric, and power have been turned off because of unpaid bills. The house has holes in it from where she literally took out light sockets, burned the walls, uh, destroyed the house completely. They've called DWP and say that they are the owners, that nobody lives here, that this house is vacant um, and abandoned. Uh, We've been trying to get the water and power on uh, for a really long time. So Liberty and Jean keep saying, I turn the power off. I turn the electricity off. I had nothing to do with the house. The house was in a trust. The bank, the trustees took control over the house because Jean neglected it. While Carrie and her sister Julie are waiting for Liberty to show up at her deposition, they get an alert to go to the house. 
When they arrive, Gene and Liberty are already there. And so are the moving trucks. Gene has completely abandoned the house. And sure enough, the trustees are there to try and take stuff out of the house. And I had no idea they were going to be there. At, at this point, our lawyer told us, hey, the trustees are at the house. They're, you know, the stuff is back in there and they're now taking it out. So we, we headed over there. I'm the executor of the estate, which means I have some control over my dad's memorabilia and some other things, but nothing to do with the actual house itself. That belongs to the bank and the trustees. All of this is captured by cameras for the syndicated show Inside Edition. Gene accuses Casey's eldest children of killing their father to go after his assets and a life insurance policy. She's screaming. She's on her fake crutches and fake the fake cast with her fake broken leg. So she's hobbling and she throws her crutches down dramatically. And I'm thinking, okay, nobody's going to believe this. But lo and behold, this angel starts walking up my dad's driveway. And it's the male lady who's been there forever. And the house has been locked up and closed for a couple of years and she decided once the gates were open, oh my gosh, they're home. So she pulls the mail truck over and starts walking up. And I'm like, no way. This is, this is amazing. And I walk up. I'm like, hi, how are you? She's like, oh my gosh. This is, you know, I haven't been here in so many years. I just wanted to see what was going on. And I said, well, you know, she's like, this is such a shame. Your dad would be so upset about, look at, look at this house. And I said, it's, I said, I'm so glad you're here. Jean keeps telling everybody that I turned off the mail, that I had it forwarded to my house. And she goes, you didn't do that. Like Gene and Liberty told me to, to, to forward the mail. They told me themselves they were moving out. I'm like, would you mind telling that to the cops? Would you mind telling that to Inside Edition, who's filming her talking about this on national television? She goes, absolutely. It's just horrible, you know, because look at the property. Have you ever been told not to deliver Gene's mail? No, Jean has a change of address. Why should I deliver mail to a house that I know is vacant? It's just so symbolic of what happened to the entire family is this house. You can just watch what happened to it when my dad died. It deteriorated, just like the family. Throughout the day's chaos, Liberty broadcasts live on Facebook. She even gives viewers her home address to come and help. This is not the first time. This is not the first time. We've been surveilled. We've been watched. We've been harassed. We've been run off the road. Um, I had to leave the state in fear of my life. And then I come back here. And then they follow us, stalk us. And then I get assaulted. And then I try to call the cops and nothing. 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 Outside the mansion's gate, on public property, a man assigned by the bank to watch the house is sitting in his car. Excuse me. Liberty approaches him. You, you need to leave. Uh, I don't know what you're doing on your computer. Actually, I'm going to call 911 because there's no parking. You can leave. The man reaches to push Liberty's phone away. Give me my phone. Oh, wow, you see that? He harassed me. Hello? 
just harassed me. This guy harassed me. This guy harassed me and took my phone. I have it on Facebook Live. I have it on Facebook Live. You just tried to harass me. I'm, 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 I'm terrified of my life. If anything ever happens to me or my mom, all this is proof on Facebook. I just want everybody to know this. It's just, I, when you grow up for 34 years dealing with crazy, it was almost cathartic that they were doing this. Like my stepmother throwing frozen raw meat at me and screaming fake Bible verses and Liberty giving out her address and asking for help because there's a fake killing cult that's going to take them down. I'm not scared, scared of this criminal cult that keeps murdering people. I mean, it's like this is what we live with. As the wrongful death trial approaches, Carrie starts noticing suspicious things around her house in the San Fernando Valley. Just got back from New York and this van has been sitting outside my house for five or six days, going on a week. It does not belong to the construction crew at all. So why is a white van with some type of device on top of it sitting out in front of my house? The van has a satellite dish pointing towards Carrie's bedroom. She suspects Jean is trying to gather intel for the trial. There's a listening device inside, and they're probably listening to everything we have to say in there. The problem with sociopaths and psychotics is they think we think and just like them. So we're con they're obsessed with, with us, and they're obsessed with the case, and they're obsessed with... We don't even talk about it. Carrie's ex-boyfriend, Jesse Cove, was living with her at the time. I literally felt like I was part of like a murder mystery on television. We were living it, and it's fucking weird to be in the middle of it. There would be cars parked outside the house that we'd never seen before. We're like, what is this car doing there? You know, sometimes like you 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 drive by it, there might be someone sitting in there and they drive away. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know if people were trying to listen to the conversations we're having in the house or watching us. You know, was there a private investigator looking at us? You know, it was it was fucking scary too. Carrie documents each night the van is parked outside. That's when I called my PI, Logan Clark. I think when anybody is harassed or stalked or anything like that, as much as she was, you know, the paranoia is just a natural thing because it's really happening. You know, it's not that you're going crazy. It's just shit's really happening to you. Logan tracks down the address registered to the van. Carrie drives there with her friend, true crime journalist Melissa McCarty, and knocks on the front door. Are you guys missing a white van? Because it's going to be towed in the next two hours, and it's registered to him. A white van? Yeah. A white van registered to him. Uh, no. Jose, the son of a private investigator who is the registered owner of the van, is at the house alone. See, um, van registered, Francisco, 59, your address, the van number. Uh, no. Yeah, it's going to be towed, towed in, like, the next two hours. Is the location of this van? Oh, uh, Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what street? So I'm thinking, if this is not their van, why is the guy asking for the location and address of it? Then Carrie has a hunch to ask about her half-sister. Is Liberty here? Excuse me? Liberty? Uh, no. No? Not here now? No. When was the last time she was? Uh, like a couple of days ago. Do you know how we can reach her? 
Uh, no, she's out of out of the country. Oh. She's on vacation. Oh. Back in Guam. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but when she's in the United States, is she staying here? Uh, not a thing. So I think she's moving out. No. She's moving out. Yeah. I can't. I can't discuss that. Jose won't say anything else about Liberty or the van. It didn't surprise me at all that Liberty was accusing Carrie of the exact same thing she was doing. Liberty and, and Jean are, are kind of classic examples. They are the type of people who will project on other people exactly what they are doing. So the van got towed or picked up by its rightful owner the very next day. But the fact that there was a van with a listening device pointed at my house, sitting outside my house for more than a week, was so upsetting. I mean, Gene and Liberty blame us for what they themselves are doing. We caught them red-handed. This was a house that Liberty was living at. And this is not a coincidence. It's June of 2017, and finally time for Jean's deposition in the wrongful death lawsuit. After multiple attempts of trying to get Jean to sit down for a deposition, I mean multiple, she finally does, because she would have gone to jail if she didn't. Literally, we could have sent her to jail. Jean walks in 90 minutes late. She, of course, is late, and... We're all sitting there. It's my two lawyers, my sister, myself. I think that was it on our side. And then Jean's lawyer. And then Jean walks in with her PI, Hank Foresta, who I guess at this point is Jean's only friend. And I don't know why he's there, but she walks in with him. She hobbles in. She's got the fake broken leg and the crutches. Jean is wearing a leg cast. When Jean got caught lying or she was exposed, she would immediately fake some kind of illness, broken leg, whatever it may be, to get out of it. And, I mean, this happened all the time. So when it came time for Jean to have a deposition, I knew that she was going to fake an illness or get sick. And she did this for at my sister's wedding, too. She called my dad like 56 times because she had fake broken something again. And everybody knew it, even my dad. Tony, Jean's right-hand man for 16 years, says Jean often faked injuries to gain sympathy and attention. Tony speaks through his translator. All these, all that was a lie. Everybody knows how she is. She would always do it, like show her broken leg or foot. She would always do the same thing. I would see her walking, like nothing, like nothing had happened. I would see her with crutches, and then she'd say, I'm all better now. Then all of a sudden we would just laugh the next day, or I'd say, what happened to you? And she would say, oh, I twisted my ankle. And the next day she was walking like nothing happened. In the deposition hearing, Jean speaks under oath for the first time. I would just like to uh, say for the record that I'm under heavy medication. I have a badly broken leg. I had a very bad night. And I would like to see my doctor. I'm really not doing well today. What medication are you on? 
I'm on a, um, an oxy pain medication that was prescribed for me by my doctor. When did you last see your doctor? I would like to leave and see my doctor. I'm on heavy pain medication. Are you able to say anything else besides that rehearsed script? I would like to see my doctor. I'm on heavy pain medication, and I'm in a lot of pain, and I had a very, very bad... Jean says she's under heavy medication 10 times during the deposition. She won't answer any questions. She won't answer any, I mean, even just simple questions. And she walks out a couple times, and her lawyer gets her back. Ms. Kasem, you understand that you've been given an oath to tell the truth? That it's the same oath that is given in a court of law to tell the truth under penalty of perjury? Yes, I do. And do you understand I'm under a lot of medication? Attorneys are trying to establish that Jean's primary residence is in the state of California, even though her husband died in Washington state. What was your primary residence on June 15th, 2014. That's the day Casey died. Will you repeat the question, please? The room is silent for one full minute. I didn't have a residence on the day he was died. On the day he died. The day he was killed, I did not have a residence. He went after every lie she told. So... She just couldn't tell any more lies. She couldn't get around it because she was kept digging herself into a you know, bigger and bigger hole. Where did you have personal property at the time Mr. Kaysen passed away? Jean stays silent, and then suddenly she drops to the floor. All right, let's take a drink, Black. If you were going to faint, you'd faint and kind of fall over on the arm, or, or you'd faint and you'd fall backward. I know this because when the medics were called, they asked, how did she faint? Like, did she fall forward? Did she fall back? They, that's, but she, and she's done this before, she fainted, this fake faint, the, the fluttering of the eyelashes, and the falling forward and then out of the chair, and then... She sprawled one arm out that she just happened to land on perfectly so her head didn't hit the ground. And her hat flies off and she just lays there. Several minutes pass. And we're just sitting there silent. One of my lawyers says to Jean's lawyer, are you going to do something about this? And he says, it's your deposition. This <laughs> Jean's lawyer it's your deposition. He goes, it's your client. <laughs> and they're arguing about who is going to check Gene Kasem laying on the floor. When the paramedics got there, I'm not kidding you. This is how they treated. Ma'am, it's time to get up now. Ma'am, you got to get up. My leg, my leg. Okay, ma'am, use your other one. Verbatim. That's what they said. Use your other one. The deposition ends. Now, here's the interesting part of this whole thing. I had written a letter 
to my lawyers and to everybody involved, in fact, saying, there's three things that are going to happen. There's going to be a medical emergency. She's going to fake something. She's going to get sick. Jean never answers essential questions for the wrongful death trial. And on the home front, she apparently has other issues. The press reports that her alleged boyfriend, John Paul Gressy, attacked and threatened to kill her. From what I understand, Jean-Paul was really upset with Jean. I mean, really upset. He was throwing plates and things, and, and I guess Jean got hit. She had to go to the hospital. Liberty, I believe, called the cops. It was just a mess. Jean-Paul's criminal record goes back quite a ways. He even got into a fight with his own lawyer. He threatened to stick his gun up his butt. Jean is granted a temporary restraining order against Gressy, who, according to Jean's representative at the time, was not in a personal or intimate relationship with Jean. Gressy's ordered to stay 100 yards away from Jean and her cat. The irony that Jean got a protection order not only for herself but for the cat is that a couple years ago, and this is coming from my dad's neighbor in Malibu, when John Paul Gressy was living in the Malibu condo, he had two cats, and he decided to take off with Jean and didn't come back for a very long time, and one of the cats starved to death, and there was a really pungent smell of death, and the neighbors were worried, and by the time he got back, he walked in, he had brought Liberty with him. One cat was starved to death, and the other cat went running out of the condo. Just no respect for life, my father's, or animals. Meanwhile, Carrie and her siblings are still trying to clear their name against Jean's charges that they killed their father. When Jean said we were part of a homicidal guardianship and that we had killed my dad and she brought this fake evidence to the police in Washington, they went through it. They started the investigation and came back with, there is no evidence of collusion between the family members and doctors that would construe any part of this incident to be considered a homicide. They released that statement. And then we came back with, we're very grateful to the police department for conducting this investigation and concluding there is no evidence to support Jean's wildly ridiculous claims. But the civil lawsuit remains. It will require Jean and Liberty to testify in front of a jury. The trial is highly anticipated by the media and advocates who hope that the case sets a precedent for punishing elder abuse. A court date is set for January 2020. So Jean finds a way to legally stop the, the trial by filing a frivolous lawsuit for a higher court, which stops a lower court action. And the judge asks us to mediate. You know, we, we all get in a room and my brother is there, his wife is there, my sister is there, my uncle is there, um, you know, my my two sets of lawyers and one of my dad's dearest friends who was helping with the case. We all decided what we were going to do and that was not to settle. And if we were going to settle, it would have been for everything my father ever left us, which would never happen. You know, Jean's not going to do that. It's not in her blood to be fair or to be honest or to be good. So we have this whole talk, it lasts for a little while, and that's it until the mediation date. 
We get into mediation, starts at 9 a.m., and it goes till 3 a.m. The bitter legal feud between the late Casey Kasem's older children and their stepmother has ended in a settlement. News of the settlement goes viral. The terms of the agreement were not revealed. Carrie is reeling. Because of a pending lawsuit, I really can't say much. But what I can tell you is that I fought that settlement, that mediation, for 18 hours straight. I was exhausted. It it was probably one of the worst days of my life. I remember I cried for weeks afterward. I'd think about it and just burst into tears. I was truly devastated by what happened. And I'm working to correct it legally, but I don't really think this will ever be correct. I mean, six years of fighting an intense battle for my dad alongside what I thought was my team, my family. I mean, that was my blood. And I left that room in that mediation feeling for the first time alone, abandoned, and betrayed. Really left with no one. Carrie has one last battle to fight for her father, fulfilling his wishes to be buried in California. My dad being in Norway is definitely unfinished business. He will be brought back to America and buried where he wanted to be, where he intended to be. That's going to happen. He didn't believe we are bodies. We're, we're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. He very much believed that. So he's not with his body. But he wanted to be buried in a cemetery where people could come visit. That was for his family, for his fans, for his friends to be able to pay their respects. Not only did this woman disrespect her husband's wishes over and over and over again, and even in death, she disrespected everybody who ever loved my father. Everyone and doesn't care. Carrie learns the priest at the local cemetery tried to talk Jean out of burying Casey in Oslo. But he says Jean insisted she was Norwegian and planned to live near her husband's grave. She lied to the country of Norway to get him buried there. I mean, she lied about everything, being Norwegian, that she was going to move there, that my dad wanted to be buried there. And when we asked, why did you do it? Why did you bury our dad there? And they said, we trusted her. We trusted that she was Norwegian. We trusted that she wanted to be here and, you know, tend to your dad's grave. Jean Thompson's own family had written a letter stating they were not Norwegian. And they still buried my dad there. Jean buries Casey in an unmarked grave. The controversy grabs the attention of a local woman, Anki Engen. She's a rock music fan who hears Carrie on her radio show, Six Sense. Anki's own father has recently died, and Carrie's story touches her. I heard uh, 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 Carrie and I grief our dads at the same time. I got the mission 
to find the grave, but I live in Sweden at the border to Norway. So I have about an hour to Oslo. I found his grave and I spent a few months uh, till I found him, that unmarked grave. So I called that church and then I get the number and uh, his spot number, which is 23. Every few months, Anki, a mother of three, drives nearly two hours to Casey's grave. She visits, lays flowers, and sends Carrie pictures. I heard her her um, sadness. I felt the same sadness because of the loss of my own dad. I start thinking, my God, this poor woman and, and her sibling, someone has to go and put some flower there. So... Okay, I, I did that. I have all the pictures. I have tons of pictures because every month she would go and she would tend to his grave and she'd ask, is there going to be a, a, you know, a gravestone and what's happening? And I mean, it's still unmarked as of today, but she goes and she puts candles and flowers. And what she told me is they confiscate it. So she could go back, like she's gone where she's gone back in a week and everything's gone. Everything. Anki helps Carrie and her siblings feel connected to their dad. But it's not enough. Casey's loved ones want him buried in Los Angeles, at Forest Lawn Cemetery, per his wishes when he was alive. The best thing we can do here is to get closure uh, so that we get justice for him. Casey's close friend, Mike Kerb. No one deserved to go out that way. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. And if we could get closure for this, I think it would give all of us a lot of peace in our lives. I mean, that's a lifetime goal for me. Mike and Carrie want to end the final chapter of Casey's life the right way, no matter what it takes. Well, what would stop us from bringing him back? What if we, you know, what if we exhumed the the body and you know the, the casket and and flew him back flew flew him back I'm with you like, if you want to do it I'm with you Carrie remains relentless in her pursuit of justice not just for Casey but for so many others The lesson that I took from my dad is the best thing you can do with your voice is to give it to those who don't have one and to help people. I mean, that's what he did his whole life. And I strive to be like him every day. The Kasem Cares Visitation Bill was created so that what happened to my family doesn't happen to anyone else. I'm really proud to say that There's a visitation bill in 21 states, and people can now see their family members because of it. We have story after story, and people thanking me and my team for helping them see their parents. And it doesn't get any better than that. She's just been a gift, and let me tell you, she's the only person that's given us hope to keep us going. 
and uh, I'll never be able to thank her enough. <laughs> There's no words for what she's done. Today, we have the Survivors Panel. Kaysom Cares holds one of the biggest conferences in America regarding this type of abuse. We don't call it the Victims Panel, Survivors Panel, because these people are survivors. They're all fighters, every single one of them. We're the only nonprofit who has a hotline for people in distress dealing with parental isolation abuse. I mean, we have congressional recognition. That's recognition from the Congress of the United States of America. We've won several humanitarian and advocacy awards, including the biggest one that you can win, and that's the Presidential Volunteer Service Award. I am very proud of Kaysom Cares. They were able to help me find where my father was, connect with my father, and help me bring him back so, so that he could die where he had always wanted to die. I wouldn't have been able to do that without the Kaysom Cares Foundation. This is such an honor. Oh, thank you so much. At the end of my speech, I talk about what my dad would say at the end of his show, which was keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. So there are 50 stars on a flag, and each star represents a state. And I won't stop until I have all 50 stars. So I'll keep reaching for the stars, Dad. Dad, I love you. I love you, too. If you or someone you know is a victim of elder abuse, please contact the Kasem Cares Foundation at kasemcares.org. This has been Bitter Blood, Kasem vs. Kasem, an Audible original produced by AYR Media, hosted by me, Martin Cove. Executive producers for AYR Media, Aliza Rosen, and for Kasem Point, Carrie Kasem. Supervising producer, Ben Raphael Schur. Producer, Melissa McCarty. Written by Melissa McCarty, Eliza Rosen, and Ben Raphael Schur. Associate producer, Eric H. Newman. Edited by Tristan Bankston. Narration directed by Isa Toda. Mixed and mastered by Tristan Bankston. Audio engineering by Elliot Herman and Jesus Murillo. Studio engineering by Stephen Clark and Spencer Bradham. Original theme music by Nathan Bankston. Voice acting performed by Ricardo Garcia, Greg Gaston, Ashley Marriott, Amy Polacco, and Rebecca Rankin. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for Audible, Andrew Eisenman, and Laura Regan Kleinschmidt. Acquisition and Development, Stella McGrotha. Vice President of Audible Studios, Mike Charzik. Editor-in-Chief, Audible Original Publishing, David Blum. The producers would like to thank Logan Clark at loganclark.com, Art Volo, American Top 40, CBS, CNN, CONUS, C-SPAN, KABC, Kitsap Sun, 
KTLA, Sixth Sense, Vin DeBona, Splash News, and WJZ for the use of audio and other materials that were essential to the production of this program. Copyright 2021 by AYR Media. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Audible Originals, LLC.